Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a very special guest and someone whose work has inspired thousands of Australians to invest in the share market. Before I introduce her, I just wanted to ask you to please listen to the very end as I have a special giveaway. Danielle Ecuyer pursued a successful career for 15 years in institutional equity, stockbroking and wealth management, first in Australia and then in London, where she worked at some of the world's preeminent financial firms. After retiring, and she looks way too young to retire, I should add, Danielle became a full-time investor and mother. Shareplicity was released last year during the global pandemic and quickly hit the bestseller list and stayed there for most of 2020. Shareplicity 2, which we are going to discuss in this podcast, discusses gaining exposure to stocks on the US market. Before I introduce Danielle, a disclaimer here. Discussion in this podcast is by way of general advice on financial literacy. It is not financial advice and it may or may not suit your individual circumstances. So welcome, Danielle. Thank you, Serena, and it's lovely to be here. Super lovely to be chatting with you as well, and congratulations on the success of Shareplicity. Oh, thank you so much. It was, um, it was very exciting, <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> and we were talking before about how you sort of had never really expected to be writing a book, I guess. No, I think my friends told me that I had always said I wanted to write a book, but, you know, having having the dream and making it become a reality are two di- very different things. And uh, it really was a, tra- a case of writing something that I knew something about. As much as I would love to be the next best Colin McCulloch with a wonderful novel, I think I'm going to have to work on my writing skills for a bit longer. But your writing school skills are excellent. And personally, I love nonfiction writing. I just really love how it's like a change agent. It really changes people's behavior. And Shareplicity has certainly done that. I mean, you look at how many people started investing in shares for the first time. Yeah, it's huge. I was looking at some statistics over in America that Charles Schwab have done recently. And they say there's been a 15% growth in new share investors. And it's very much concentrated in the millennials with a bit tipping over to the Gen Z and into the Gen X, boomers not so much. But there's been this amazing influx in both America and Australia of new investors. And I think it's because of probably three or four reasons. One, interest rates are so low. Two, everyone was in lockdown, stay at home mode, and they saw suddenly there was this opportunity to buy share markets that had absolutely collapsed because of the the lockdowns. And then they now have this incredible technology that enables everybody to be able to invest across the globe from their lounge. And I think this has sort of all come together. And when we talk about, which I think you want to touch on, how the pandemic has changed the world, I think this is a really classic example where you've you've had all these situations colliding together with technology to create this whole new phenomenon. And also to the younger investors, they don't have any awful PTSD from the GFC. (laughs) I mean, a lot of people lost money in the GFC because they had borrowed to invest in shares. And a lot of people were very scarred and will never go back. Whereas the young investors are going, hey, we can't really afford to buy a property at the moment, but we wanna do something with our savings so that maybe we can afford to buy a property. 
and shares have become a vehicle to which many of them have been um, investing in. Yeah, I hear you too about the change technology. And just to go back in time, I had my first part-time job when I was 15 and 16 at a discount supermarket chain, which doesn't exist anymore, called Franklin's. So I had... <laughs> I know Franklin's. You know Franklin's. <laughs> so I worked there, I think, uh, Friday nights and Saturday mornings. I can't remember whether it was Thursday nights as well. And I had a fairly decent income. Anyway, why I am mentioning this is because I remember that stock market crash of the 80s. Was it 87, mm-hmm. the Black, yep. uh, Black Monday or Black Friday? Yep. And Black Monday. Black Monday. And I was round having a dinner with some friends of my parents and they said, oh, you should buy shares. Actually, I still remember they told me to buy Westpac shares. And they're like, oh, it's going to be fantastic and the price is so low, which is not dissimilar, I guess, to what happened in March 2020. Things were very low. And I thought, great. But as a 16-year-old girl, the thought of trying to find a stockbroker in, mm, in the mm, yellow pages, mm, ring them up. Mm and then execute a trade like I just it was just a bridge too far but now it's just so mm. easy isn't it oh absolutely and you hit on a really important point the fact that once upon a time you really had to have a reasonable amount of money to invest in the share market because a you had to go through a stockbroker a private client stockbroker and they really didn't probably get out of bed for less than you know $10,000 or $5,000 back in the day which was a lot of money and B, the execution cost to actually do the trade was so expensive. So you, you had to have enough money to start with. And then when you bought the shares, you really had to sit on them for quite a while. But obviously, all these online trading platforms have totally changed the whole investing paradigm. And it's, it's very, very good, but it can also be adverse if you don't understand the risk that you're taking. Yeah, risks is a big one. And I know you talk a lot about this, but how can people investing in the share market for the first time, especially some of those millennials, how can they reduce their risks? How do you suggest they get started? Well, there there are quite a lot of articles that one can read or great books I hear. <laughs> <laughs> one called Shareplicity, I think, that was a bestseller. <laughs> uh, but uh, jokes aside, I always suggest to people, you, it's, it's the obvious answer to the question, you have to do your research, but I would suggest that they contact their friends and just start to suss out from whether it's their female or their male friends, where they invest and start to get an idea of, because the whole process, it has to start with you and how much money you have to invest. And do you have the ability to continue to invest over a period of time? So I always say, before you do anything, you have to look at yourself, look at your own parameters and say, am I able to put, I don't know, $100 away every two weeks or $100 a month or whatever the amount may be? Because it literally is the amount of money that you have to invest will really determine what platform or strategy you take going forward. So the smaller amounts of money, you have lots of options in terms of there's one called Raise that is an app. So when you go shopping, it tops up the the amount, the change that you have left over and it invests it in an ETF product. There's another one called Spaceship, which you can invest small amounts of money in and that goes into managed funds. Or you can start a online trading account and you invest by amounts of 500 if you go onto Comsec, but Comsec Pocket, 
which will give you the option of going into ETFs, I believe, is an amount of $100 and much lower cost. So the first thing is for everybody, you have to make the commitment saying you're going to save by invest or save or grow your money by investing in the share market, but then you have to work out the amounts and then depending on the amounts, will probably determine what type of platform that you take going forward. That's good advice because I guess, especially young people, they might not have large amounts to start with. Well, it just, yeah, it really depends. I mean, I did some examples in the in the first book where I said, you may be somebody, uh, a lady that's got divorced and suddenly you you have this money or hopefully you have money after the after the divorce. Not everyone does. Not everybody does. That's absolutely right. But hopefully the situation has been fair. And often women that come out of, of marriages have not been in control of the finances in, in terms of investing. So in that case, they really should look at getting doing a lot of their own reading, but also seeking some professional advice. But don't underestimate how much that you can do yourself. And I always say to people, there is nothing wrong with questioning professional advice, okay? Because the industry is incredibly good at making themselves seem more intelligent, more important than what they are, whereas it's your money and you have to feel comfortable where where your money has actually gone. So there'll be a difference between somebody who's got divorced, somebody who might have inherited some money, someone who's won the lottery, or somebody like the average person in the street that just says, hey, this is crazy. I can't really earn a return on my bank deposit. So I'd like to be part of the share market. How do I do it? And normally ETFs are probably where most people most people start. Well, that's a good point, actually. Let's talk about ETFs. Should people buy ETFs or should people buy individual shares? I have this kind of rule of thumb. I think when you start out with smaller amounts of money, it's probably preferable to buy an ETF. It doesn't have to be. So in, uh, and for your listeners, I don't know how well acquainted are they with ETF products. Some will be very familiar. Some will probably think they're like FPOS and it's a bit confusing. So just okay. to spell out exchange traded funds is what ETFs stand for. Absolutely. And I always say it's a bit like buying a bag of lollies or my latest one is it's essentially you buy a whole lot of shares through one financial product, through one share, and it's a wrapper that reflects an underlying basket of shares that is normally let's say, an index, which again is a basket of shares. It can be a thematic, such as clean energy, such as cyber security, such as healthcare, such as financials, whatever. But I always say to people, when you buy an ETF, you're buying a whole group of things and you should actually have quite a good idea of of what you have bought, as in what stocks are in that ETF. But going back, sorry, the original question, because I've wandered off, for small amounts of money, up to $5,000, I usually say you put $1,000 over time into five ETFs. Post $5,000, you can start to look at adding individual shares. And the reason why you would add an individual share is you are trying to achieve a higher return than that return that you would receive on the ETF. So it's a bit like the icing on the cake or the cream on the cream bun. You're basically <laughs> trying to to grow your savings more aggressively by adding stocks. I guess everyone really likes to pick a winner, don't they? Absolutely. And the winners are wealth change makers. And the problem for most new investors is they hear their friends bragging about 
buying Afterpay. Once upon a time, it was A2 Milk. I made a ridiculous amount of money on A2 Milk. And they go, oh, this is so easy. You just buy one winning stock and off you go to the races. But of course, it's not that simple because with 2,200 stocks on the Australian share market, you you know, picking that one sometimes can be challenging. <laughs> well, I guess, especially with two, because you want to pick it when it's really low, right at the beginning before anyone else has picked it, right? Well, no, not really, because you could have bought Afterpay anywhere from $1, $9, $20, $50, even $70, because it's it's somewhere I haven't looked for a couple of, you know, a week or so, but I think it was around $130. It, the same if you'd bought, let's say, Amazon. I bought Amazon at $700 in 2016, and a friend of mine who's been in investing for years and years she goes, oh, you can't possibly do that. It's far too expensive. It's gone up way too much. Well, it hit $3,500 US last night. <laughs> so the thing about buying a winner is that sometimes the winners just keep on winning. And if you're prepared to hold on to them, it really doesn't matter of what time, at what point in time you've bought them because they will continue to grow. And that's really what Shareplicity, the book, was all about, how to find those winning stocks. So you can actually buy those those winning shares and keep an eye on them, but hold them over a long period of time. And that's really how you grow your wealth. Well, thank you for that. So your book is, this second book is really about the US and you do talk about some of the existing big, big companies that are in the US. In fact, I even have an acronym, I think, for some of the big ones. They certainly do. It started by a, a chap called Jim Cramer, who's very famous in America and he's on CNBC. So if your listeners are interested, they can go onto the CNBC website and they can actually look up Jim Cramer. He's an absolute hoot. He does, I think, a very good job for trying to educate new investors as well as existing investors. And no, I am not paid by Jim Cramer. I just, I just think <laughs> Thanks he's for worth... the clarification. <laughs> <laughs> but he coined a phrase called FANG. So Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. And it has been expanded over time because we've now got Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft, and Google, and the parent company is Alphabet. And they are all massive companies. With the exception of Netflix, Facebook just joined the trillion-dollar market cap club. So when I talk about market capitalization, it's basically the value of the company in its entirety. So it, it's, it's how many shares are on issue times the stock price. And these companies are ginormous. I, I've written a piece for somebody where I compare the GDP of Australia for the first quarter of this year, and it was 1.4 trillion US. Apple, I think, is around 2.6 trillion at this point in time. And that really puts it in context. These companies, I call them like the, the mega giants. You know, they are stocks that people have been saying just can't keep on growing and they just keep on growing. Good or bad, whatever it is, it is actually just a fact that they can continue to actually continue to move into different services, different high-end products, etc. They do in, indeed keep morphing into different things. And I mean, reflecting back, like I think it was only about 11 years ago that I first got on Facebook and this incredible change. It's just happened so quickly, really. Yeah, and you're, you're right. It was, I think I first got introduced to Facebook around 2006, 2007, and uh, it had been around for a while. But it's, you know, it's, it's now 
But I think Zoom is the classic case in point. Nobody really thought of doing this type of video conferencing because you had to go to Microsoft Teams. I suppose there was Skype, but Skype had always been a bit, well, I find it a bit clumsy. And suddenly you've got this incredible company that makes video conferencing around the world so easy. And then a pandemic hits and everybody is absolutely using it. And I think the Zoom model is here to stay and we will have these hybrid working situations where people probably have more flexibility. I think in terms of technology, it just continues to gather a pace across the globe. The Zoom boom, it's been phenomenal. And I know you had bought Zoom before the pandemic, and I know this because we'd had a brief discussion ahead of the money debates panel that we were both on last year. Who could have really predicted this? We knew that this was happening. We knew that there was a move towards people working remotely. But gee, the global pandemic has really changed things so quickly, hasn't it? Oh, completely. I, I think it's, it's, there was always that thing after September 11 that the world was going to change dramatically after a S- September 11. It was the most horrendous. I remember I watched it all live when I was living in London and literally just sat there crying all afternoon as you kind of looked at the way the world works has changed forever. But in hindsight, we seem to adapt, move on. Everybody got flying again. But I think the pandemic has really, the impact is far more profound. I think we could have been warned as much as we were, and I think everybody would have seen that TEDx talk from Bill Gates about a potentially very dangerous pandemic. But of course, humanity is such that we tend to ignore these risks until that kind of hits us in the face. And let's face it, it's not only us that we're ill-prepared, but the politicians. But the one thing I will say is that humanity, I think, has rallied to the challenge and done an incredible job. And part of that incredible job is the resilience of people and of companies to be innovative and adapt and change quickly so that it made the whole process of lockdowns and the way we were living more bearable. And I just think a lot of that is that that pace of change is just going to continue. It's kind of like if you had to, there was a spark that has lit the fire. I think that that has been the spark that is going to make the next decade one of the most I suppose, innovative, and you will see some of the greatest change coming across the globe. A lot of people might argue they don't like that change, but I think it's coming and I think it's incredibly exciting. And that's why I wanted to write the second book, because I think a lot of that innovation and technology can be captured more easily in the US markets, because that's where it's the US is one of the the leading innovation giants, technology giants in the world. And whilst Australia does have some incredible companies, just because we're a smaller country, there's just not as many. Well, thank you for that. And that's a good segue actually to talking about some of the mega trends. And in your book, you have a whole chapter where you talk about what you see and based on the analysis of others as well, some of the big mega trends going forward, and especially too, in terms of US innovation, some of the sectors that are really growing as a result. Yeah, I've, I've detailed quite a few of them. And it's, it's interesting because there's There are a lot of them, but basically we're talking about e-commerce, still so much growth there. Everybody thinks, my gosh, it can't keep on growing. But when you look at the the amount, I think it's maybe it's up to 22% of total US retail sales that are done online. So there is the capacity to continue to expand. And I think any business that doesn't have a strong online presence really, really struggles now. 
digitalization and comes what comes with that you've got online gaming i know a lot of people might mightn't like that you've got online streaming of content uh, you've got the telehealth and digital medicine sectors which are growing hugely online fitness peloton over in the us actually i noticed last time i was uh, near a westfield in bondi junction which i haven't gone back to for obvious reasons because the outbreak of the covid <laughs> down here in sydney but a new peloton store has just opened up in bondi junction I mean, I have personally been doing online Pilates and yoga classes every morning for the last week because you can't go to a a gym. Another huge one is the fintech sector. We've seen Afterpay as a classic example here in Australia. Small businesses. I don't know if you have your square. I love my square. I I do have a square. Sometimes it's a bit glitchy, but I do like it. (laughs) Well, I've got a newer one. I don't know. I haven't had any glitches. haven't sold that many books on it yet, but it was absolutely fantastic. That's one of the highest growth companies. There's a lot of fintechy companies happening over in the US and also in the UK. And one of and then there's there's one software as a service or the SaaS model. Atlassian is a classic case in point. That incredible Mike Cannon Brooks Scott Farquhar company. And one of my favorites because I could keep on going on on and on and on because you have things like edge computing, which is moving on from the cloud. That's a, to allow for the Internet of Things but is clean energy and electric vehicles, which is one of my most favourite passionate sectors because there is just so much innovation and so much money going into these areas. Yeah, it is very innovative and it is very exciting. And as I said before, I have a particular interest in hydrogen and the potential for Australia's economy. These things are are potentially huge. Absolutely. There was um, about $2 trillion spent every year on energy. And you can imagine that if we are transitioning away from fossil fuels, then that is a minimum of a two trillion spend each year that's going to have to go into these new sectors to decarbonise. So it's absolutely massive. So with all of these new things happening in the US, in Australia, in pretty much everywhere, and all this new innovation and all this sort of craze and all this blingy, blingy sort of potentiality, How do you wade through all of that to try and find the next big Zoom or the next big Facebook or the next big Amazon? Well, I tend to I tend to say that depending really you don't you don't need to. There are a lot of incredible ETF products that have been listed here in Australia where you can capture these mega secular trends. So the cybersecurity, climate change, clean energy, ESG, environmental social governance companies that are that are leading on that so really for most people you don't have to zoom zoom down that's the bad use of the word isn't it you don't have to focus you don't have to focus focus in on uh, buying one specific company unless you're like me that would always probably have a tesla share because i just think as quirky as he is i do think elon musk is changing the world and that is not a recommendation for everybody to go out and buy tesla shares today but um, no, uh, no financial I, advice. Agree. <laughs> exactly. This is none of this is financial advice. This is me just talking around the themes and the opportunities for you. So I think that to make the most of these huge growth secular themes that are changing the world, again, doing a little bit of research, reading about it, and also just real life experience. If you you know, it's there's nothing wrong. Like if you love using the product, like Apple. I mean, I fought buying Apple phones for years. And of course, now I'm a complete Apple devotee. 
Same with my son. He goes, I am not buying an Apple laptop. Absolutely no way, mum. I've had enough of them. I'm going to buy a Huawei. So off he goes after he leaves school for university and he buys himself a Huawei. It's great technology, but he goes, I just, I prefer an Apple now because he doesn't want the Microsoft product on the computer. But I think that don't underestimate if you really love the products, then there is nothing wrong with investing in the companies. And that's another way that people can actually look at it. Broadly speaking, a fund manager the other day said to me, everybody should own QQQ, which is basically the NASDAQ ETF. And when you buy that, you're capturing all the large trillion dollar companies. And that's basically what the NASDAQ's about. And it's kind of one of those ones that you buy and you just put in the bottom drawer and forget about. Thank you for that. Sounds like there's quite a few options there, including ETFs in terms of getting in and not necessarily having to pick just that one that's going to take off. No. And and that's when I go back to the the point that I made in the beginning. When you're saving, you can can start by um, buying. So I'm just looking here. I've got a list in the book of Australian ETFs with US exposure. And I've tried to, I've just probably got about 40 of them just in my book alone. And there's more than that. And there's more coming to the market. But I always say to people, you just don't want to hold an ETF that is representative just of Australia, because we're it's a wonderful country and small is beautiful, et cetera, et cetera. How can people find a bit more about ETFs that would be good to purchase to gain exposure to US innovation? Absolutely. Uh, well, apart, dare I say, there's, there's a whole chapter on this in the new book. In the book, Shareplicity too. Absolutely. And I've detailed probably 40 Australian ETFs that have exposure to the US. But just to give people an idea, I read the other the other day, and I'm just checking to see whether or not I actually have it in my book. And I think I have been remiss, and I didn't capture this one. But there's a nice one by Van Eck. So they're the ETF provider. And they have one called Quality Global Companies X Australia. And the code, the ticker code is QUAL. And that's got some excellent stocks in it and a very large representation of US stocks. So Shareplicity is very much an advocate for investing in those winners, as we discussed previously. Winning stocks typically have a set of characteristics that will apply across all different companies. They're normally what we call quality companies that can grow through the business cycles. And I tend to say to people that you want to capture those types of stocks in the ETFs that you buy. So when when you buy, let's say, the ASX 200, you're buying a whole group of stocks and you may not necessarily want all of them. It's a bit like when you buy a can of tuna and they've had huge fishing trawler nets out there and you've picked up some dolphins and some other things to get your tuna. Well, you'd be really upset about that. And that's why we're meant to buy tuna that's on on the rod caught that way rather than the big fishing trawlers. It's a bit like an ETF. Sometimes you can buy and you think you're doing the right thing. But if you have an ethical disposition or an ESG focus, you could well swoop up some stocks in there that you don't really want to have, whether it's gambling or tobacco or coal or oil. And that's all I'm saying to people. You need to do a little bit of research and pick those trends that can grow, but also meet your own expectations of how you want to invest your money. 
Thank you for that. And I think for so long, a lot of people thought that they couldn't invest because investing meant that they were um, investing in companies they didn't believe in, like investing in this capitalist system that didn't always suit their own individual ethics. But it's, it's so good to hear that this is changing. And in your book, you talk a lot about this incredible growth in ESG and your sense that this is going to continue. Absolutely. BlackRock, Larry Fink, he had an epiphany where he worked out climate change is one of the biggest risks facing humanity. And because he is quite open about just wanting to make money, he has now converting BlackRock to having an ESG screen through all of their ETFs and stocks. And it's called the Aladdin software. And so you can go online and and have a look at that. And the thing about share markets and capitalism, it gets a very bad rap, and rightly so, because greed is allowed to run rampant. But when it turns its head because it is trying to make money and it's in the right direction, like decarbonizing the globe or trying to invest for profit with purpose, which people can do, then you have to say this is actually probably one of the best systems we have to create positive change. I know that there's lots of negative stuff, but if you can create a better world, hopefully with more sustainable products and a more circular economy with less wastage, and you do that because people know they can make money by doing this, then it's a much greater impetus than just trying to legislate, which is never going to (laughs) happen. Well, you never know, but thank you so much for sharing that. And I have one final question, which is, Do you have a frugalista tip to share? Oh, we had a little bit of a chat, didn't we, about this one, Serena? (laughs) Well, I I have lived uh, in Sydney, well, back in Sydney, and even when I was in London, I usually had a really small fridge because we didn't always have the biggest properties. And uh, when my son and I were growing up, my lovely, I had a beautiful old timber cottage and I had quite a small kitchen. And I had a son that just used to eat, you know, he was a rower. Oh, my God, could he eat? But my fridge was so small, I couldn't do lots of shopping all at once. So I learned very early on that I do more shops daily, let's say, and just buy food that we knew we were going to eat. So my frugalist tip was buy smaller amounts regularly so you don't have food wastage. But it is very much dependent because I didn't have a huge freezer where I could pre-cook huge amounts of food and put it in a freezer. And obviously, the converse that, as you said, If you can buy in bulk and you can freeze it and then use it, then that's great too. But I just wasn't in that position. (laughs) Well, I think you touched on something really important, which is it really depends on your circumstances. If you were living on acreage, for instance, you would be more likely to have that second big chest freezer. My in-laws live about half an hour away from the shops. They're on acreage. They're about 45 minutes out of Canberra. So when they go shopping, they do buy supplies because they don't go into town every day. They only go sometimes. But I'm in an inner Canberra location in an apartment. I don't have a big fridge. Storing lots of things is an issue for me. And it sounds like it's an issue or has been an issue for you as well. Oh, absolutely. The one time where I did have a big fridge and if there's any any younger or any mums with young kids, I used to, I was taught in London, it's this great thing where I would have cook-up days for cooking my son's food. And we do a, a, a salmon, a big uh, cook-up with broccoli and carrots and potatoes. And then I get the bar mix out and you smudge it all up and then you tip it into ice, ice cube trays. And then you put it in the freezer 
And then I would do this with the salmon. I'd do it with the beef. I'd do it with the chicken. I'd do it with the lamb. And they all had like all this amazing fruit and, I mean, vegetables and meat stuffed in. And I used to make all these ice cube trays. And then all he had to do was basically defrost one and he'd have his incredible nutritious dinner. That was about the only time when I did everything <laughs> in bulk because I had a fridge, a freezer large enough for my son's ice cubes for his dinner. <laughs> Well, it's actually really important for young children, especially when they first start on solids, because you know what's in it. I mean, a lot of the commercial stuff is just filled with sugar. Oh, yeah. No, we never did that. I made everything, absolutely everything. He's, yeah, anyway, you see see how healthy he is and how strong he is. You'll realise that uh, he's never not had a good meal. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Now, do go and buy Shareplicity, Shareplicity 1, which was a bestseller is a bestseller and also Shareplicity 2, which looks specifically at the US market. And how can people find you? Well, the website is shareplicity.com.au and you can contact me through that. If not, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook under Shareplicity. Same for Instagram and also on Twitter. I love hearing from people, any feedback, good, bad or indifferent. Yeah, it's never too late to start the journey. Fabulous. Now, I did mention at the beginning that I had a surprise, and that is that I have two copies of Shareplicity 2 to give away. To be in the running for them, check out the promotion on the Facebook page. That is the Joyful Frugalista Facebook page, and you will find details of that soon. So thank you so much once again for listening. Thank you, Danielle, for being my amazing guest. I've learned so much. Make sure to check out her wisdom in both of her books. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And, of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. We could watch the boats float by. You could talk and I would listen. I would understand your mind. Oh, I love
my promise to you.